Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. I'm Mark Dolan, and this is Headliners, a first look at tomorrow's papers. And helping me do just that are two comedians for whom it's party gate every night. Wine box loving Jonathan Cogan and a man who they're on first name terms with at Oddbins, Andrew Doyle. How are we both? Andrew, if you had to choose between what, what is it? Party gate and beer gate. Those are the two gates, aren't they? Do you have a preference? Uh, party gate, I think, because then you get cake and snacks. That's a good and point. Volibons. You see, you're getting to that age where it's about the catering. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, are you a party-loving animal? I have been known to party on occasion. Yes. <laughs> but not tonight. Uh, well, done a bit of partying earlier today, so I might wobble off my chair, but we'll see. Well, right now you've got your eye on the prize. Mm. We've got lots of stories to get through. Let's start with a look at tomorrow's front pages. And we begin with the Daily Mail, the, the astonishing decline and fall of jailed Boris Becker. And after a mail expose, a cover-up of Beergate, this is a Labour Party scandal, police told to investigate Labour's lies. Cabinet ministers last night joined calls for a new probe into the Beergate scandal engulfing Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm standing by him, says wife of Tory MP who watched porn in Commons. Was she standing by him whilst he watched <laughs> the porn? I'm confused. Each to their own. The Daily Telegraph. Porn MP refuses to quit as he loses whip. Becker serves time. A photograph of Boris Becker and his girlfriend on his way to court for sentencing. And West fears Putin will declare all-out war on Russia's V-Day. The Independent Boris Becker jailed for bankruptcy fraud. Wearing a tie in the green and purple of Wimbledon, the former world number one, arrives at court earlier today. Tory MP faces inquiry over porn in Commons. Neil Parrish is suspended, but Labour urges him to resign now. Crumbs, what a mess our politics are in. The Guardian, Tory MP Neil Parrish faces inquiry over porn claims and Boris Becker jailed for two years for hiding assets. Also, Michelle Moan, the entrepreneur and peer, has had her home raided as a PPE firm linked to her businesses is being investigated. FT Weekend, HSBC pressed to free Asia business. China insurer seeks a breakup of HSBC. A dual focus is not tenable. Geopolitical tensions mount. Also, Chelsea goal. LA Dodgers team leads bid to buy this valuable Premier League club. The Daily Mirror next. Boris to serve time. You'd think it was Boris Johnson, but of course it's Boris Becker, another Boris that's in hot water. Yesterday he received a two and a half year Jail term for a bankruptcy scam, this according to The Mirror. Also, Vardy blames best pal in Colleen War. That's right, Wagatha Christie continues to intrigue. Uh, the Times now. Go now, Tories urge MP in Commons porn row. And British billionaire bids £4 billion for Chelsea. The Sun. Time. 
Downfall of a tennis legend, Wimbledon champ Boris Becker nets two and a half years for £2.5 million fraud. And those are your front page headlines. Okay, so we'll start with the Daily Mail and uh, police have been told to investigate Labour's lies. Who wants to go at this one? That's you, I think, Jonathan. Um, it could well be. Uh, did that one I've been given? That's the only question. Because, uh... I mean, this is a fascinating story, isn't it? It's, it's the idea now that the shoe is on the other foot, that actually we've had months of the Tories mired in the Partygate scandal, but the Mail seem to be going after Labour and Keir Starmer and they appear... Andrew, to have drawn blood. Well, you have to be non-partisan about these things, don't you? I mean, mm. if, if rules have been broken, it doesn't matter if you're in power, if you're in the opposition, you still have to, it, you know, it has to apply to both. I don't think this is a partisan thing from the male, particularly, I wouldn't have thought. Well, no, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it, it, it obviously, you know, it, it's the incriminating photo, isn't it? And video footage of Keir Starmer having a beer. And the other big problem seems to be, Jonathan, that Labour denied for months that Angela Rayner, the Labour Party deputy leader, was present at this event. It turns out last night it was a mayor culpa from the Labour Party that actually knows she was there. I mean, are there any consequences for lying? I mean, there should be. It kind of feels like uh, people just say whatever they can and see what they can get away with, and a few months later it all comes out in the wash. And did anything happen? Hang them high, that's what I say. Hang them high. Hang and, them high. Uh, and, 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 of course, you know, that one is, is clearly an intriguing story and it will run and run, no doubt, across the weekend papers. Okay, where should we go next, folks? Okay, well, let's uh, talk now about MPs behaving badly, Andrew, okay. and, and this time with their smartphone in the house. Well, this is fascinating because Neil Parrish was on GB News a few days ago talking about this whole thing and didn't mention that he himself was the one who was accused of watching the... Yeah, he, he kind of said, oh, there's going to be an investigation, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, he, he said, um, well, he, said that he denied that there was a cultural problem within the House of Commons, but that sometimes people overstep the line. That was the, the, the sort of... I suppose he couldn't have said anything thinking about it. I mean, how could he? Uh, maybe he was hoping to get away with it, I don't know. But I kind of feel with this... I mean, he's been named now, obviously, so this is in the papers now, you know, it's all come out, it's all very shaming. I still refuse to believe that he was doing it. I refuse to believe that any MP would be checking, looking at pornography in the House of Commons. I think that would be a level of stupidity, almost, almost like a vegetable level of stupidity. And I don't believe you can become an MP if you have uh, the IQ of a vegetable. And also, uh, politicians have an instinct for self-preservation. They're right. normally ambitious people. They've normally got at least half a brain, as, you, as you've I, said. I just don't... But the I, idea that they're sat there with no, Pornhub... Look, just I, tell going, you, I tell you what I think it is. So when I was a teacher, there was a, a member of staff who was giving a presentation. You remember they used to wheel in old videos and TVs on those racks? And he, he put a video, or the video was already in press play, and it was a porno great film... Uh, which he'd obviously been watching the night before, and he frantically turned it off. <laughs> so, he, you know, so I know that this can happen. And I assume that there was some kind of pop-up on this guy's phone, something that maybe he so was... So like a tab that was open that yeah. he didn't mean to so, click on. So, like, he was watching something the night before. Sure. I, that's what I... I mean, it has to be that. You don't think yeah. he just... No. ...got carried, up, carried away in the moment I, and just really fancied... Have you been in the House of Commons? It's the most sexless place. Really? OK. I mean, you, you couldn't be aroused with that green leather, unless you have a particular fetish. A leather, green leather fetish, Well, maybe, yeah, yeah OK, I mean, maybe, did, they, yeah. did they say what genre of pornography he was looking at? Because I feel like, if you're <laughs> allegedly looking at... Because I feel like that makes a bit of a difference. Like, maybe it does. You know, if it was just vanilla, fine. If it was more extreme, maybe that's crossing a line. Am yeah. I wrong about this, Mark? I just don't believe it. 
Well, I think that there's a case to answer, and, and I do wonder whether he'll he'll explain, come up with a you know some sort of explanation as to what exactly has happened. But I suppose the existence of pornography on his phone in a professional setting might be enough to actually end his career. But it wouldn't have been downloaded, would it? It would be just internet. Well, I don't, typical. I don't have your knowledge. You need to know an awful lot about <laughs> Andrew. I don't believe you. I tell you what I want to know. I want to know which network he's on that he can get that much sort of coverage in, in, in central London. <laughs> You're looking at all this exciting racy material online. Um, but I mean, so, so I, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I mean, this is the last thing Boris Johnson needs. Right yes, now. it is. It absolutely mm. is. But there's been a number of scandals, obviously, mm. uh, this week and the, the Jamie Willis thing as well. And, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's and, and the sleaze scandals have been going on for a few months now. And uh, no, it doesn't look good. It is the last thing he needs. Um, but I think when it comes to this individual, I think we should wait and see what the reality is about this, because I'm still I'm going to remain sceptical until I'm proven wrong. Fair enough. Yeah, OK, well, that's it. Let's give this guy the benefit of the doubt. It's not a story that's going to go away. Neither is this one. Boris Becker goes to jail, Jonathan. So this is in The Independent. So Boris Becker jailed after hiding assets to avoid paying debts following 2017 bankruptcy. Um, now, the three-time Wimbledon champion, who's 54, was found guilty of four charges under the Insolvency Act, uh, including removal of property, two counts of failing to disclose estate, and uh, concealing debt. So he's He's really in it. And it kind of feels like they're really making a big example of him. Is, is this a proportionate punishment for this kind of crime? Or is it because he's famous and well-known that they're really just trying to make an example in front of everyone? What do you reckon? I mean, the, I amounts, the amounts involved are huge, though, aren't yeah. they? I mean, he, there's a lot of money going on in here. And I suppose... Ah, uh, 2.5 mil. Well, you know, but I suppose from his perspective, someone who's been that rich and that successful, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like much. And it, it feels a little bit like, you know, he lost all this money. He crashed. He was humiliated. He wanted to keep... Uh, as much of it as he could, and 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 so he felt that the the amount he kept, I suppose, from his perspective, wasn't all that much at all. From anyone else's perspective, right. it's, it's absolutely huge. But it's yeah, it's, I mean, it's clearly a, a massive breach of morality and law and everything. I mean, it's really shocking. And he's got previous on this because he got in trouble with the German authorities when he was in his twenties for not spending enough time in Germany, and because uh. he didn't fulfil his sort of citizenship duties, then, then he, wasn't, he couldn't enjoy that lower tax status that yes. he benefited from. So uh, he seems to have been badly advised for many years. And yes. You do wonder whether this genius has a self-destructive bent. I suppose it's, you know, I mean, there's lots of people who sort of do the odd cash-in-hand job and this kind of thing and get around the tax man. Uh, but when you're a millionaire or billionaire, uh, when you do those things, uh, it has the consequences are so much more extreme, aren't they? Because you're dealing yeah. with got to get the right accountant. Yeah, yeah, you do exactly. That's, yeah. that's what you spend the money on. But there are all sorts of ways that you can uh, you can avoid taxes as a rich person anyway. Go legally, on. legally, yeah. yeah, you know, but, which is um, a good one. Tax avoidance, no tax, no evasion. tax evasion. Yeah, neither is good. What's the one? Than... What's the one? <laughs> okay, neither is good. Pay your taxes. Achieving news, we support. But, but you know, he's you know. This is this is obviously criminal activity, and he know he must have known this was criminal. And this is this is the second time he's got in trouble for this. Does he come back from this, Jonathan? I mean, what to win Wimbledon? Well, well, it's obviously a bit of a ask, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but for example, in the commentary box at the BBC, oh yes, Wimbledon, of course. I, um, does I, tennis welcome him back as a coach? He's, he's known for being a tennis star. He's not known for being a sort of moral, upstanding member of society. He doesn't... Mm. I, I think you can still... You can separate the, if you like, art from artist here. You can just have him as a tennis guy, have him commentating. And I don't think he needs to be... Um, I don't think he needs to lose his career over this. Maybe he just it, does his it, time. That's true. It depends yeah. what job you do. I mean, Jeffrey Archer came back yeah. after prison. Mm -hmm. Because it didn't matter. Because he was a roguish 
type, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Sort of, you know, that was... Boris Becker's of a similar ilk, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, is he, is he he's not the bad boy of tennis, so that's McEnroe. He's, he's much... Oh, you see, McEnroe could completely own this. Yeah. Like, like... It would actually help his credibility, I think, <laughs> this kind of... And it also depends on the crime, doesn't it? I think stuff to do with money, people will forgive. White-collar crime is just less... It's not violent. Well, I think it's not violent, it's not sexually based. Yeah. And I think everyone kind of understands it because then, you know, if I could have an extra few hundred thousand pounds, you would. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I'm not at all justifying it. You could say it's uh, not his fault. That, very good. Nicely, it's a good nicely. tennis no, I, pun. I love that comment. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm thirsty. Let's have juice. OK, we'll stop. <laughs> nice. Uh, more tough news coming out of Ukraine, Jonathan. Uh, yes. So <clears throat> uh, the British aid workers. Mm. Yeah, so um, the British aid workers captured by Russian troops in Ukraine. Now, these are two British volunteers helping to provide humanitarian aid in Ukraine, and they've been captured by the Russian military. Uh, and they've been identified as Paul Yuri and Dylan Healy. Now, these are two obviously very brave and charitable men, and I guess we really need to ensure um, that we can get their freedom somehow. And the Foreign Office uh, is on the case, so hopefully they can do something about this. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, a nightmare in another dimension to this war, isn't it? It's horrendous. And um, it doesn't look like there's been, as you would expect in a wartime situation, there hasn't been any due process here. Uh, they've been accused of being British spies. Mm. Uh, um, and after they were captured and the, um, and the Russian soldiers stormed the woman's house, who was uh, you know, obviously involved, and they, and they asked her, how do you know these British spies, straight away jumping to that accusation. Uh, and of course, that's that's not their aid workers. That's you know, but that's how they're going to be painted yeah. uh, in order to justify the arrest and the treatment of them. And it's very it's very very sad. And when people go out and make these um, humanitarian gestures to these war zones, they do know that they're putting themselves in in danger. Mm. And, and this is always a risk, unfortunately. Um, but it always happens to the good people, doesn't it? Yes. And will it be leveraged and weaponized by Putin? Well, I wouldn't put it past him. World War Three is still on the cards. Has Vlad gone mad, Andrew? OK, but this is Ben Wallace, British Defence Secretary, saying that he thinks that Vladimir Putin will declare a new world war in days. This is apparently, so this isn't... I just want to make clear about this article. It, it isn't Vladimir Putin saying he's contemplating making mm. this declaration. Right. This is something that Ben Wallace is, has said on an interview on LBC that he supposes. So really, this is... It is kind of uh, speculative, let's put it that way. So we shouldn't... Uh, Catastrophize, I suppose, because that's always the risk, isn't it? I'm already catastrophizing. I'm sure I'm, you are. Yeah. But, you know, because early when, when the invasion was happening and all the, uh, a lot of the press were talking about World War Three, yeah. nuclear weapons, nuclear Armageddon, and, and, and I, I just think we all have to calm down a little bit. I'm not, I'm not sure how helpful these kind it of... It sells articles. papers. It sells papers. You put the World War Three headline on... I'm reading. I'm yeah, well, I mean, this, I, is this politics from Ben Wallace? Is he trying to undermine well, or dilute uh, the potency of... Putin's remarks. I mean, he might very well know things that I don't know. <laughs> I imagine the Defence Secretary knows a lot more about uh, intelligence, uh, geopolitical information than I do. And also, you know, when, when um, the invasion was initially, just before the invasion happened, I was really confident that wasn't going to happen because it, it clearly wasn't in Putin's interest. It clearly wasn't in Russia's interest. And it still did. So what, what the hell do I know? I clearly don't get this right. So I don't want to say there's not going to be a big world war. Um, but uh, you know, as for why Ben Wallace is saying it, well, he's provided a reason. He thinks that it's because Putin has failed in so many of his objectives. And as a result of that, he's feeling sort of backed into a corner. Well, that's a worry, isn't it? If it, if it doesn't go his way and he's yeah. left with the nuclear option, if you like, it's, I mean, there's no 
great outcome that I can really see here. No, exactly. I mean, yeah. it, and a lot of people speculate about the type of person that Putin is. Yeah. And, you know, how ego-driven he is and how he doesn't like to lose. And, and you know, I mean, he, it's he, that kind of maniac, wouldn't yeah. it, that who would, who would be like... Yeah, literally maniacal, yeah. I mean, he said he's doing a war on the Nazis in the world. Well, that's so just he, propaganda. He, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's gone woke, really, apparently. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the same thing that the woke people say. Yeah. Well, that's too right. I mean, just staying briefly in Ukraine, I mean, do we know what's happening in the field, Jonathan? What's the latest from Ukraine? Um, so, uh, well, the legendary Ghost of Kiev fighter mm. has been killed, the fighter pilot has been killed in battle um, after Ukraine claims a hero shot down 40 Russian warplanes. Uh, now, this brave fighter became popular at the start of Putin's invasion when the Ukraine military shared an image of him claiming he had shot down 10 Russian jets. Mm. So he's become a bit of a folklore hero. I've seen a lot of memes about him on the internet, a lot of people praising him. Uh, there was a real mystery about who he was. But now that he's been unfortunately killed, um, he's been revealed to be Major Stepan Tarabulka, who's 29, and he was killed on, Mar on March 13th. And uh, yeah, he's died a hero and he's been awarded... Uh, medal posthumously, um, which is Ukraine's top medal for bravery in combat, uh, the Order of the Golden Star, with the title Hero of Ukraine. So he's, he's become a legend. They're going to make a film about him, I'm sure. Um, yeah, he's sort of become a, a bit of a folklore hero now. Well, he was a symbol of resistance. Mm. And that's the, a lot of, you know, as we know, with wars, the, the, the symbolism of stuff really, really matters. So it's like the destruction of the, uh, the uh, battleship the, uh, the other week. The, yeah. the Russian, I mean, that kind of thing, you know, their they're, they're main... Um, naval uh, ship being destroyed was it was it was less about what was achieved there and more about what that represents mm -hmm. you know the, the might of Russia being over overcome and here again it's it's you know this is not good for morale amongst U Ukraine it is just one pilot mm. uh, but it's a pilot has come to represent so much more than himself yeah I mean what's really dispiriting is is hearing politicians talk about this going on not just for months but years mm. I mean surely that's unimaginable <sighs> Well, who knows? I mean, this is the thing. Like I say, I don't, I don't like to predict because mm. none of us know really what's mm. going to happen. And also, what is the way out? I mean, at some point, you know, we've got Ben Wallace talking about how uh, Putin is desperate enough and, and has, has had his ego scarred sufficiently to go for the nuclear option. But he has to, has to somehow, if, if he doesn't go that way, he's going to have to say to the people of Russia, it was a victory for us. Mm. Not, it wasn't a waste. We've succeeded somehow. So there has to be some sort of resolution, either in terms of, you know, uh, some, some sort of agreement with Ukraine, uh, not to participate in NATO. You know, this kind of thing that has to yeah. be... I don't know if it's possible. I really don't know. Yeah. But well, there's got to be a way out. Let's, uh, let's hope that there is a swift conclusion to that awful, awful conflict in Ukraine. Uh, lots more to come in the next section, including is the high street bouncing back? We'll discuss that shortly. See you in two... Welcome back to Headliners, a first look at tomorrow's papers with myself, Mark Dolan. Tonight in the company of the wildly clever comedian Jonathan Cogan and a man who distracts me with his attractive legs, Andrew Doyle. <laughs> They're good legs. Asylum seekers taking the government to court. But what for, Andrew? <laughs> OK, so this is to do with Priti Patel's uh, plans to um, uh, resettle asylum seekers in Rwanda. And this is now going to be challenged in court. Uh, there are two asylum seekers who remain lameless, who, who came to Britain on the backs of lorries this year, and they are now issuing this uh, legal challenge. Um, they obviously can't be named. They, 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 they say there's a risk that if they were to be repatriated, uh, they could be in danger, as is the case with many uh, asylum seekers. Now, it's interesting because the lawyers are going to use the same technique that was used by, if you remember, Gina Miller, uh, yes. who, who was trying to block 
uh, Theresa May from triggering Article 50 had the successful court challenge saying that she needed to get parliamentary approval for this. And similarly, it is now said that the government should have had a debate and vote on this deal with Rwanda. And, and that might be, therefore, how this is going to be tested. It is how this is being tested. And the Home Office is actually claiming that it welcomes this, says, you know, we, we can't wait to see this being tested. Uh, we, we always expected uh, this to be challenged, apparently. Um, so it's, it's, but it's interesting, isn't it, this, this, this in, entire uh, discussion, because the way that it's been painted, obviously, by many people, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, is, you know, this, this is a great evil, this idea of, and, and of course, it's played on a lot of people's preconceptions about what Rwanda is, and we still think of it in our mindset as this war-torn uh, place, and mm. that's not, of course, the case anymore. Um, and Priti Patel, her argument is that actually what this will do is this, this will completely um, uh, circumvent the problem of the human trafficking, of these awful people who are exploiting these poor, desperate human beings and, you know, just taking away their business model, I yeah. suppose. So, you know, it's a bit more of a nuanced argument than the way it's been painted, which is just... Oh, let's kick out asylum seekers to some other country. Which and if, if, if the you know there's there's considerable public support for the Rwanda plan, maybe not majority, but but you know a, a healthy minority of Brits support uh, what the Home Secretary has done. And if the courts are supportive of these asylum seekers, then there'll be a tension, won't there, between democracy. And the courts. It's, it's difficult. Which and we it, saw during Brexit, we as did, you and, and again, of course, if you remember at that time, lots of people were then saying that the courts are... Um, Enemies uh, of the people. That was the actual phrase that was used, wasn't it? Mm. And there were lots of people who were then very sceptical about the High Court mm -hmm. uh, and the, uh, the supposed political partisanship of certain members there. And, you know, I think you'll, this will reignite all of those old debates again if this happens. It's always a bit of a problem, isn't it, when the judiciary is used or is perceived to be being used as a weapon against the government, mm. that, because that's dangerous stuff. Mm. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you see this one playing out? It's, it's, it's clearly quite an important test case, Jonathan. It, it is, it is. And I also have the feeling that if it wasn't Rwanda and if it was another country, there'd be the same issue raised. I, it almost just feels like it's an attack on the idea of repatriating um, yeah. mm. migrants somewhere else. And yeah, if it wasn't Rwanda, if it was another country, a similar argument would be made. But how do I see it playing out? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one. I think it's probably going to pass and yeah, people will be sent there, if I had to say it. I just avoid making predictions. Yeah, those, yeah. Just because I get it well, wrong. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the early reviews are in and the numbers of illegal migrant crossings seems to have dwindled significantly. Oh, no, that's it, absolutely well, true. It, yeah. It, I mean, it is having an effect. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if... if the, the, the question is about the way in which this is represented and, you know, Priti Patel is being de you know, demonised and sort of said she's trying to just, uh, she, almost like it's a kind of racist thing. But the problem is if she doesn't do anything, uh, if she just left the numbers to escalate as they have been, I mean, that's a voter killer, isn't it, right there? Yeah. So yeah. there is a kind of, something has to be done. Mm. Um, I do think that we have a great tradition in this country of taking in people in need and people from uh, countries and, and asylum seekers. And I, I wouldn't want us to stop doing that, um, but but it's not quite the case that this is just, you know, throwing them out somewhere that might be risky or dangerous for them. This is, this is um, perhaps, I don't know. I don't know whether this is the right approach, but it's an approach and she had to do something. And applications for asylum have to have, to have a mechanism. It has to be orderly. Yes. And, and this, is, this is the argument for and, the Rwanda plan. And if we're, con if we're genuinely concerned about asylum seekers, which we should be, we should also be concerned by the people who are exploiting them, with, by the people traffickers. Yeah. You know, because they lead to, to their deaths and, and their exploitation. 
Well, let's uh, move on now. And it looks like a shakeup on the EU's border force, Jonathan. Yes, so this is the story in The Guardian. Uh, head of EU border agency Frontex resigns amid criticisms. Uh, so Fabrice uh, Legery, as I like to pronounce his surname, is under <laughs> Legery, Legery, yeah, under he's under fire. Legover? Yeah, no. I, I'd go with his. <laughs> Jarry, under fire over, he's under fire over the agency's human rights record and anti-fraud investigation. So the head of the EU border agency, uh, Frontex, has resigned after he, after he was censored by the union's anti-fraud agency. There have been numerous reports of its complicity in illegal pushback of asylum seekers. So it's a very tricky, complex situation that I only actually learned about today. So I don't know much about Front Frontex, really. I don't, in fact, I'd say I know nothing about Frontex. I thought Frontex was a contraceptive. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's for... Uh, it does both. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. It doesn't work in the back, only on the front. Um, I guess that's kind of true. No, no, I guess, yeah, no, they both work. But, but it just demonstrates that this issue of migration is, is, you know, it's a headache for the whole of Europe. For sure. Oh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's been a headache for the EU for a long time. I mean, yeah. the EU has been paying warlords in Libya to, to keep people out, you know. I mean, if you... This is why this has bothered me about the EU referendum. Because a lot of people were talking about, you know, and they mischaracterised people who voted Brexit as being sort of anti-immigrant. There's nothing more anti-immigrant than the EU. I mean, they created a kind of fortress Europe mm. uh, that effectively, you know, condemned many migrants to to drown in the Mediterranean because mm. of their policies. I don't think, you know, they're very good at freedom of movement of people within Europe. Then they're terrible when it comes to uh, freedom of movement from people in other continents. Yeah. You know, and even those in need. So, you know, I don't think the EU got any kind of moral high ground there. Couldn't agree more. Moving on, the Foreign Office in trouble again. Andrew, tell us more. Uh, OK, yes, well, this is actually quite a horrible story. This is a woman who was on holiday in Turkey uh, and she went, to, she was sexually assaulted. Uh, she went to the Foreign Office to seek advice and the advice she received was pretty appalling. I mean, if this account in the Daily Mail is accurate, I've no reason to suppose that it isn't, uh, but they even said you you should carry on with your holiday and enjoy it. If that if that's true, I mean, I get you know I wasn't there. You know, I'm only going on what's been reported. But that's just absolutely appalling. And the thing is, they gave her terrible advice. So they were they were saying that um, she 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 she'd given all the evidence that she needed to give and provide in Turkey, and therefore she would have to file the report once she's back in the UK. Mm. But by that point, uh, it, it was too late. The investigation of, and as you know, with these kind of investigations, you have to get an early investigation in order to secure evidence and to secure prosecutions. So the advice was completely wrong. And then if it's true that they were just telling her, I mean, basically, just get on with your holiday. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 again, it's one of those stories I can't conceive why someone would ever say that. And it doesn't seem like, to be, if we're to, to believe what's been written in the mail, it doesn't seem to be a failure of the Turkish authorities. No, no, no. But no, rather those who should be looking out for a British citizen. Yes, exactly. So, I mean... Yeah. Again, I don't. I, it's one of those things I just cannot conceive of anyone saying it, but it's quoted here, so it looks like. I, I mean, I'm sure no one was going to be flippant about an accusation of rape, surely? Yeah, I mean, you, you would hope there'd be some kind of system in place to really, really help someone who'd been through that. You know, at least like a, a sympathetic ear who can just explain what to do next. Because yeah, obviously, that's sure. a very traumatic experience. Um, there's obviously a huge legal um, issue or element to it that you're going to have to resolve. It's kind of horrible to think that she was just almost uh, just overlooked, really. Yeah, um, that's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah, it appears to be a tragedy and a colossal injustice. Well, things nearly got explosive at an airport as an old relic sent security guards into a spin 
Is there anything that you've tried getting through customs, Jonathan, that they wouldn't accept? <laughs> oh, many things, but anything this show goes out in the morning, so I, I can't <laughs> say. Uh, so this is a story in the Telegraph. So an unexploded bombshell packed as luggage as souvenir sparks airport stampede. Now, this is quite a crazy story. So mass panic erupted in Israel's main airport on Thursday after an American family attempted to fly with an unexploded shell as a souvenir. Now, if there's one thing you don't bring, <laughs> one thing, even I know that, you can't bring, like, a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. You can't bring a bomb with you. It's just... But did they know it was an unexploded bomb? I, I mean, mean they... why would they bring it? What could it be? Just, like, a, like a metal... I, mean, I like to think it was one of those cartoon bombs with a big... Well, maybe string. they maybe thought they... it was jewellery or something. Or maybe they thought it had... It, it was... I don't know what they thought. This is, it was found in the Golan Heights. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a hangover from the, 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 the 1967 war. And you think, well, unless they thought... Because it's so... Maybe they're really stupid. And they just thought, so. because it's so Americans. old... yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they thought, this thing's so old, 1967, you know? It must be... It can't be... Oh, they it were must small be back then. It's, it, it's sell-by date by that point. Yeah. Maybe? That makes it more they dangerous. Wonder. What if it... You know, I mean... But it caused chaos, didn't it, at the airport? It, it did. To People one were man, jumping over luggage that, carousels. Exactly. Literally, there was one guy who was hospitalised over leaping over a baggage carousel. I'd like to think that would be me. I'd like oh. to think I'd... Death by carousel. Yeah. It's like Going a scene from a carry-on. Death by Samsonite. Yeah. Yeah, great. Oh, not great. <laughs> uh, not, not good when you're on your way to your holidays. <sighs> Staying abroad, there's shocking news relating to a British national in Iraq. Andrew, what's happened? This is a man called Jim Fitton, who is a retired geologist. He was on a holiday in Iraq. He's obviously very interested in um, archaeological sites, and Iraq has all sorts of, uh, you know, artefacts and, and uh, uh, incredible historical uh, areas of interest. He was with a tour group, and there were some shards of like old pottery, you know, sort of artefacts um, sort of embedded in the ground. And the tour guide said, you can take those, they're not valuable, no-one's going to care, it's fine. So he was informed of that. And uh, now he's on a charge of attempting to smuggle historical artefacts out of Iraq, a crime which comes with the death penalty. Yeah. So, so now, of course, there's a lot of pressure. And obviously, his family are absolutely terrified. And, you know, firstly, I mean, the, the artefacts, the, 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 the fragments, which he was just taking as a souvenir, as, as one family member put it, it's like picking up a pebble from the beach mm. to remember the holiday there. Yeah. It's that innocent. And the idea that, this, that he could lose his life over this is, well, it's barbaric. Yeah. Um, and I would, you know, I'm against the death penalty anyway, um, but I would suggest that this is a particularly egregious example. An important reminder, though, that when you're travelling to other parts of the world, it's important to understand local customs, mm -hmm. isn't it? And this very, is very, true. You know, but, but... I, I have that when I, when I go into Camden Town in central London. Those oh, yes. people are different. They've got different values, different <laughs> ways. They absolutely do, yes, Camden Town. Because it's more like the, that's the world of the cyberpunks, isn't it? Just and, a bit. Yes. And the rest. Yeah. Uh, let's move on now. Actually, we're time for a very, very uh, quick break. Uh, we've got pay rises coming up, the joys of working from home and fish on drugs. That's right. We've got some fun stories. See you in two. I'm Mark Dolan and welcome back to Headliners, in which we take a look at tomorrow's papers. Tonight in the company of two comedians who are like gin and tonic. Yes, they'll give you a headache. It's Jonathan Cogan and Andrew Doyle. The lockdown recovery is looking good for our high streets, Jonathan. This is a good news story. Yes, good news, finally. So this is a story in The Times and there are fewer empty shops after reopening of economy. Great news. Uh, we're bouncing back. So it's the first time 
since the spring of 2016 that the overall vacancy rate has fallen in consecutive quarters. And it's the biggest quarter-on-quarter decline since the consortium started collecting the data in 2015. We're back. COVID's over. The pandemic <laughs> is done. We're fine. I miss shops. I'm yeah, sure. although everyone goes online now, don't they? So a lot. Of, it's been quite a while since, you know, a lot of these shops are closing. They have been for many years now. People don't really bother, do they? But it's, there's something nice about going to a shop and browsing. What happened oh, to browsing? browsing? I went to Primark the other day. Day. I went to Primark. It was like coming home. It's lovely, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you know the drill at Primark. You spend the first hour tidying up, <laughs> get everything in order, and then just buy a T-shirt for two quid. Uh, it's also just being around other people. There's that, unless it's the riots on Black Friday uh, at Primark, and those things are actually, that's actually dangerous yeah, at that yeah, point. So you steer clear. Yeah, yeah, Black Friday at Primark, that's not, uh, not for the faint-hearted. But we do need, don't we, a high street to be thriving because it's the hub of our community. Absolutely. You, know, you, you lose it at your peril, I think. Yeah, and, and it is very depressing, isn't it, when you walk through a town centre... Mm. And the shopping centre, it's particularly shopping centres, isn't it? And, mm. you know, half of the things are boarded up and you think, oh, it is, it is a bit grim, isn't it? The government have introduced a policy or they're drafting legislation to make uh, landowners, uh, landlords of commercial property like shops, that they've got to actually, uh, they've got to lease their property after mm. six months if they right. don't get their asking price. OK. It can't just uh, sit well. there and gather dust. Because what happens with so many of these, these uh, landlords is that, you know, they're sitting pretty, there might not be a mortgage on the property, yeah. and it's still growing in value as an asset. So they almost don't need, they're not incentivised to, to actually, you know, of course they'd like tenants in, but not for a low price. But now the government is stepping in. That's good. And I, I wonder whether we might see more interesting independent shops on the high street. Well, that would be good, because it gets quite depressing when you go to every town and city and they all look the same, and they've got identical shops. Now, I think character, we don't need the character is the... Town centre. We don't need another lush. You can smell it. You can smell it down the road. I'm allergic to half the soaps. I want to any lushes, do we? No. Well, I feel we're like clean enough, aren't we? Yeah. Well, wait. Do you need a shop dedicated to soap? Because soap is one of those things you just buy at the supermarket and just chuck in the basket. And it's you don't need uh, 50 ranges of soap to choose. And also, they make that soap look so tasty. You just want to bite the soap, and then you go in there and you bite it, and then you're not allowed back in. No, I hate lush. I, I have a. I have a yeah, yeah it is confusing. Right. The grapefruit soap is it just looks so good, especially when you're a bit low on vitamin Chomper. C. I know. Yeah. You share the same problem. <laughs> Wash your mouth out, young man. <laughs> Has the network rail boss gone off the rails with this comment, Andrew? I don't think so. So what has happened here is that this Nikki Hughes, who's a, the network rail executive, has been accused of being out of touch. And this was a post uh, that was basically was defending the high salaries. Senior staff have very big salaries, apparently, at Network Rail. And uh, Nikki Hughes put a post, I presume, on the internet, uh, sort of saying uh, it's a reminder, to, a lesson to those of us who should probably have worked harder at school. Mm. And, uh, of course, a lesson like that is not really helpful, is it? Because school is a long time ago. It's you know, late. It's, it's late. It's too late. So it's not really a, a useful lesson. Um, but the thing about this article is you get to the end of the article and the last line is about how um, actually the comment has been misconstrued. The author was referring to her own experiences, not directing the comments at others. She later clarified this on the same thread and this was well received by colleagues. So it's a non-story. Yeah. One of those fantastic non-stories where the last line <laughs> reveals that you've been wasting your time And it was it. all a dream. So she, yeah, it's, it's like that. So she, she basically said, it's a lesson to me. I should have worked harder at school, posted that. Someone said, oh, you sound out of touch. And she said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And they're like, OK, that's fine. 
So why are we why are we how much stuff it? online is deliberately misunderstood to create outrage? All oh, all the yeah. I mean, the, the, it's the most industry. lazy thing that a journalist can do if they haven't got a story is find a couple of tweets about something and say, "Oh, look at this! This massive outrage is going on," and it's just two or three idiots. Three angry. People. I mean, it's miraculous that this woman didn't apologise. She must have come that close. Well, to, she just or, said, or someone calling for her resignation. Yeah, I know. She just said that I didn't mean that, and that was that. And this has parallels with the Catherine Burble Singh story, doesn't it? Of course, this is the inspirational head teacher of a, a school in a deprived part of London. She's transformed the fortunes of thousands of her pupils. She has. She's a heroic figure. Mm. Uh, she's probably been on Free Speech Nation, has she? Actually, she hasn't, but she is going to be. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. We've got an exclusive. <laughs> and uh, she made some comments and she said, look, uh, girls are maybe not, uh, not taking up physics for A-level because they don't want to do hard maths. Mm. They're just not interested. And well, she was making the point that, you know, there are sometimes other reasons why we don't have exact equity between the sexes yeah. in different subjects. And, and I mean, she's an educator and she's known generations of teenage girls. And she yeah. said, look, for the most part, they, they tend not to want to do the hard maths. Right. I wonder whether the problem was the adjective hard there. It sort of implies that girls oh, are thick or lazy. Yeah. But, but that confected outrage, again, from somebody being punished, really, being pilloried for just saying it as she sees it from her professional experience. And it's, it's a reasonable point of view and, you know, it comes from a good place. It's, you know, it's, it, yeah, absolutely. Why, I don't know why. Also, by the way, I mean, Catherine Burblesing's school has done incredible things for these kids. Mm. You know, inner city kids are not from privileged backgrounds. They're all getting fantastic results because of the measures that she's implemented. So I think she is an authority that ought to be listened to because yeah. she gets results, right? To your right, to your right. Well, there's nothing worse than an empty office to ruin your day, Jonathan. That's correct. And this is a story that's close to my heart. It's a story in the Daily Mail. So Jacob Rees-Mogg reveals picture of empty cabinet office that enraged him so much he left notes for the civil servants who were working from home. Um, so basically, Jacob Rees-Mogg, as we all know, left notes saying, sorry you were out when I visited. I look forward to seeing you in the office very soon. And he left these on empty desks at Whitehall. And I like this story because it's a pure passive-aggressive note. And I understand his reasoning behind it, but it's just a funny thing to do. It's just very passive-aggressive. As I said last time, I like to leave these around my house all the time for people. Just a little post-it. Oh, I didn't know he was that passive-aggressive. Well, I, I feel like that note is a little bit. It's just like, yep, see you soon. Yeah. But I'm not saying he's wrong for doing it, but it is... So is that like with housemates when you say, I hope you enjoyed my last sausage? Yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's that sort of thing, isn't it? I didn't know he had it in him, but again, just to... to talk about the way it's reported. So this is a Daily Mail article talking about how he was so enraged that he left the note there. Mm. I don't see any evidence of rage here. I don't think no, Jacob Rees-Mogg is capable of rage, <laughs> to no. be honest. But again, it's the way it's been spun. Look how angry he was. He left the note. That's not angry, is it? Well, isn't there <laughs> an element of shoot the messenger when it comes to this, which is that a lot of people want to work from home, so they're pushing back on this message that mm. you need to mm. go to the office. Yeah. And this will be a debate going forward, won't it? It will. Uh, there were, you know, people continuing to work from home may be branded as selfish or lazy. Perhaps That's unfairly. Sometimes but... it's true. Uh, um, sometimes it's not, you know. Uh, I think you have to trust your staff, ultimately, don't you? But, you know, and I think a lot of people like working at home because you don't have to wash. Yeah, that's quite nice. Or dress properly. Or dress. Unlike tonight. <laughs> Nearly got the memo. <laughs> the dress code fulfilled entirely. Now, speaking of working from home, here's one company that's continuing to embrace the trend. Andrew. Well, yes, this is about Airbnb, and they are uh, effectively saying that we are going to allow people to work from home from various regions, and we're not going to cut your pay if you're working home, from home in a region which is, has a 
you know, uh, uh, it's cheaper to live in. Um, and uh, I, I was talking about trust, but this is actually their whole model. model. They're saying, you know, uh, we understand why people want to be seen in an office. Employers want to see people in an office because how do you know if people are working? And they've actually sent a letter to all of their employees saying, it's simple, we trust you. We trust you uh, to do the job. So uh, that, that's what they're going to say. They're going to say, irrespective of where you live, irrespective of the living costs within your region, you can work wherever you want. You won't get a, your pay cut at all. I mean, it seems quite a sensible... I think Twitter staff were also told that quite a few months ago, uh, you never have to come back to the office. And look what happened to a Twitter. blanket statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait for Musk <laughs> to get know, in. It's not, I don't think it's good for people insofar as, again, it's like you were talking about the shops earlier. Mm. Human contact is really important. I think... You know, our, our jobs, our livelihood is one of the most important things that we do. We, we spend most of our life doing it. Mm -hmm. And the people you interact with at work. I, but, you know, it's all about freedom, right? And personal choice. Yeah, I mean, there is one other aspect to it, which is James Dyson, the entrepreneur. He calculated, well, first of all, he said that work from home is, is really bad for productivity. Is that right? But he also said, he calculated that it will cost the economy about £12 billion. Pounds. Ah. Ah. And that's in relation to not using the network of retail outlets that you'd have near an office and the guy that comes to fix the air conditioner and someone that okay. puts a new toner cartridge into the photocopier and all the rest of it. Mm. But why uh, is it bad for productivity? Well, I think because of accountability. Okay. That the boss isn't there with his or her BDI on you as you work. And also he talked about collaboration, all the other ideas, the arguments that we've had around going back to the office. Yeah. But I think we might need to have an honest national conversation about the economic cost of work from home, that we can say, look, it's great for a work-life balance, it's great if you've got kids, but it will make the poor country poorer. Are we willing to pay that mm, price? Maybe. I'm surprised about that, though. I mean, when, when there have been... Um experiments in big companies where they reduce the five-day working week to a four-day working week, productivity increases, mm -hmm. even with the less time, because people are more re recuperated and more focused and, you know, I, I'm surprised. Yeah, less busy work and they just focus on what needs to get done in less time, I suppose. Yeah. But how can you flirt with Sandra from sales? And that's You don't have to do that anymore anyway. Darren in marketing. <laughs> that's lovely eyes. Well, Darren, not my yeah, type. Not your type. No. You can do better than marketing. Speaking of which, uh, it looks like Netflix and chill is no longer a popular option post-pandemic, Jonathan. More that, changes in our economy. That is right. So this story in the Daily Mail uh, reads, Netflix slashes staff after its share price created by 50% in a month and it missed subscriber target by 200,000. Now, critics, including Elon Musk, say dull, woke shows are to blame. So Netflix has begun firing staff after missing its subscriber target by 200,000 people and watching the value of its shares tank by 50% in a month. So if you were going to buy Netflix shares, now is the time to buy. This is not financial <laughs> advice, but we definitely recommend you do it. Um, yeah, so basically Elon Musk chimed in. He's saying it's this woke, uh, all these woke shows that are being made that are making people uninterested in subscribing. And I, and I do understand that there's a lot of blowback on the internet. So they had a show recently uh, called He's Expecting, where it was a... Uh, uh, a pregnant gentleman uh, going around and experiencing what it's like to uh, be a, um, a a future father and every well, but father, mother, father, I think, yeah, mother, okay. well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, some some birthing kind of birthing human, yes, yeah, so birthing human. human. That's the uh, that's the uh, term we use, that's and um, <laughs> I, I can I can see why there's blowback and people might necessarily want to watch that kind of thing, but at the same time, I think Netflix gets a bit of a bad rap because there's so much on there and it's not expensive and you don't have to like everything on there. Just don't watch it. But, or if you're really incensed by it, stop subscribing. And I guess that's what some people are doing. But I'm happy with not liking everything on there. I'll watch something. I just watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Peep Show on loop. Yeah, but you know what it is. I mean, you, you've mentioned two shows there that were not made by Netflix. That's true. They're quite old. Yes. Uh, the, it, what it is is the, 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 the material that Netflix produces themselves always has 
some kind of moralizing, sermonizing uh, aspect to it, shoehorned in to try and preach to the masses. And it's really patronizing and annoying. Sure. To the extent that I, I just don't bother watching. If there's a new show by Netflix, I just won't watch it because I know that's going to be there. So I think there's something to that. Mm. It's the same reason I stopped going to the theatre because I feel like I'm being lectured all the time by whoever the writer happens to be. Or if I do go, it's going to be something written by Ibsen or something, you know, before some days. Classic. Okay. Something that predates yeah. all of this nonsense. I think Musk is right. It's insufferable. And on that note, another author is the latest to be cancelled by the woke mob, Andrew. Oh, yeah, this is fascinating. This is um, the children's books, Biff, Chip and Kipper children's books. Well, I'm not familiar. It's a classic. I read it, read it to my kids. Oh, uh, did you? Okay. Yeah. okay. I'm still making my way through them if I oh, want They're it. tough, are they? Yeah. And I should have it harder. <laughs> they're layered, I'm on green they? now. Yeah. They're very layered. Green I read it to my sons who are now both consumed with hate. <laughs> ah, that's how yeah. they got radicalised. Yeah. Well, so this... Or, Biff, or Chip, the, and you Kipper? I don't know. And you Kipper, very yeah. good. Okay, so you. this is Alex... Oh, no, I, I hope I pronounced his name right. Uh, Alex Brichter. B-R-Y-C-H-T-A. He's the uh, illustrator. And the, the book has been pulped. This is a book called The Blue Eye. Uh, and this is about the, the children in the Biff, Chip, and Kipper series go to the Middle East. Uh, and they end up in a, like a, a souk, you know, sort of a market square. And they see there, there's a women in uh, the niqab mm. and, there's, um, and there's men dressed in the Islamic attire. Um, and the children say, oh, I don't like this place. It's scary. And of course, people have interpreted that as the children saying they don't like Muslims, but then they end up in a palace with the princess where everyone is similarly dressed, mm. and they're, but they're nice people, so that's okay. So it's not about the attire. It's so weird. And also, by the way, this illustrator is married to a Muslim woman. Brilliant. And I would have thought if you were a raving Islamophobe, I mean, it's quite the deep cover <laughs> if you're gonna, if you're gonna marry uh, But weirdly, all the bad guys look like his wife. He just drew them like her. So. <laughs> it, it, it kind of seems racially condescending to say that one group can't have scary people in it. And obviously there are nice people in the same story. So it, it does feel very patronizing to say, oh, we can't, like every group has good people and bad group, you know, good people and bad people in. So why can't that be part of the story? If that story was taking place in, you know, medieval England or whatever, there'd also be good people and bad people. It's like, just so obviously yeah. not Islamophobic. It just isn't. Of course it's not. And, and to, to pulp the book, it's so extreme. It really is. It's not just like, like stop selling, let's pulp it, let's destroy yeah. this evil thing. And I'd love One to know whether anyone in that culture uh, or of that religion has been offended. Of I course doubt not. It. Of course, of course not. not. Uh, look, we've got three more stories. Can we squeeze them in? Because they're all good ones. Fish on drugs, Jonathan. Yes, yeah, so this Guardian story reads, Fish on drugs, cocktail of medications is contaminating ocean food chain. A study in Florida finds widespread traces of a total of 58 medications, including heart drugs, opioids, antidepressants and antifungals in increasing rare bone fish and their prey. So yeah. I guess this means we're all going to be eating more fish because free drugs. That's, that's a, Goodness me. Yeah. It's, it's, Nicely it, done. It's a shame for the bone fish and fish generally, because apparently they haven't been seeing bone fish. Apparently they're beautiful fish. I, I googled them, beautiful things. And uh, they haven't been seeing them very often. They're dying because of the pharmaceuticals, which apparently go in because of human waste getting into the, the river yes. system, the water system. Just, and, and don't forget the mercury as well. Mercury, yeah, yeah. exactly. They're getting poisoned with antidepressants, so at least they're dying happy. That's the important <laughs> ah, thing. Ah, good point. I like to imagine there's a bunch of fish um, swimming around. Can we talk about Please. James Corden before we go? If we must. Um, he, uh, he is in Telegraph with a big announcement. Yes. Oh, yes. So uh, James Corden is to leave the Late Late Show next year. Um, the comedian says that his late night US talk show was an adventure, but not his final destination in entertainment, because his final destination in entertainment is going to be ITV's Celebrity Fat Camp. <laughs> Harsh but fair. Very uh, what do you think about his US adventure? I think he might have proved his doubters wrong. 
Uh, I don't know, because I'll be honest, I've, 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 I find him charmless and I can't, I don't enjoy watching. I'm sure lots of people, other people do. It's not all about my opinion. Um, I've always been a bit baffled by his success. But, you know, um, he's obviously very confident and he's got that sort of supreme... Uh, he's, he's probably excellent at what he does. I just find it, I, for me, I can't, I can't really he's, get on board. He's quite a controversial figure online. I actually did an advert with him a few years ago for his autobiography. I just had like one line in it and he was charming. He's, he's very lovely, very nice well, there guy. There we go. Yeah, but some people don't like him. And I guess that's true with every... I don't dislike him. I don't yeah. know him. Oh, no, no, not, you know, not you, but like, I, I just, I don't, he gets I, hate I, online. I find his... Right, and I wouldn't support that. Yeah. I just don't, I don't... I don't find his style interesting or... I, Do you, you know. think that British TV would welcome him back? Because I think his career... I mean, he was fantastic in Gavin and Stacey, but his career as a TV presenter wasn't a roaring success. But he goes to America and has the Maybe. carpool karaoke mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. I mean, they begged him to stay. CBS are desperate not to lose him. But there's also the advantage of being a British man in America. Right. And I think the things that annoy us about him don't translate over there. And they, and they like that big brash... Thing. I mean, that, but, but with a British accent, that's even better. I think that would really Best appeal to them. to them. But I think yeah. that kind of brash, hyper-confident, the, the, the very thing that they find appealing about him is the thing that puts a lot of British people off, I think. Because we don't like that, do we? We don't like people... No, no, it. you've got to do that modesty, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, yeah, which we all do in spades. You yeah, especially. Well, I, I'm a master of it, let's be honest with you. Uh, Bob Monkhouse... What did he say about sincerity? If you can fake that, then you've made it. Uh, many thanks to my brilliant panellists tonight, Jonathan Cogan and, of course, Andrew Doyle. We're back with more headlines tomorrow, always bringing you a first look at tomorrow's papers. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring.